You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. I am preaching to you today about the gospel of heaven in a time of lament. I am going to tell you about the dire situation of our cultural response to the coronavirus pandemic and about what these animating spirits say about our misunderstanding of heaven. And finally, about the good news that heaven really offers. Let's start with the time of lament. We are living through an era of avoidable mass death that our culture and our civic institutions fail to recognize or to grieve. Last year, the virus hit the city while I was still on parental leave in the fractured state that comes with new parenthood. We both got sick somewhere, my husband and I, I think at the grocery store, before we knew to wear masks, and we weathered it okay at home. As much as you can be okay when you know that the wait time for ambulances is four hours, when you hear the sirens nonstop, and when people are sharing photos of trucks of bodies outside. We were lucky. The news of deaths began to flutter towards me. A friend's friend, an artist I respected, Neighbors, a young activist who lived in suburban Queens and waited with me one long afternoon a few years ago in a state assembly member's office, dressed as always in an impeccable three-piece suit. I took my daughter in for her four-month checkup on a rainy April day in an empty city. People were still inside, businesses shuttered, private cells of grief and fear. The main signs of life were the new posters, A local salon, Psalm 91, accompanied by a firm declaration that coronavirus will die in Jesus' name. The hardware store, printed flyers of the dead, black and white photographs with cursive script and a brief remembrance. I struggled to describe to those not in the city how it was. It was inexplicable. Not just the lives taken and ravaged in crowded homes and among low-wage workers, society splitting open at the seams of racism, xenophobia, and poverty, but also a stopped heartbeat of public life, the thing that makes the city great. The young men hanging out under the awning, the elders playing drums at dusk, the bird watchers mixing with young lovers in the park, the collective spirit of this place, of my home. But the world still turned. To the grieving, this continuing on always seems obscene, but this time it truly was. Just as it hit New York, this virus was turned political and the depths of the crisis were scrubbed out by those with an interest in doing so. We knew from the first month that the virus spread in the air, that it particularly singled out workplaces with little protection for workers and multi-generational families in crowded homes, that it would not simply vanish with the summer air or hit some magical limit of pre-existing immunity. But not only did our political leaders fail to act, they engaged in magical thinking. Instead of confronting the reality of our situation, they touted miracle cures and stoked petty squabbles about lockdowns. There was a denial functioning at every level of our culture. And in some ways, I think it still functions. We are a city of people harried and battered, whole communities where people have been plucked out by the plague. And yet there is an eagerness to move on. No longer just the provenance of the reopened denialists, a collective weariness with the pandemic is mixing with the relief of a vaccination program, a hard-won vaccination program. We run to a normalcy, 
crave every hug, talk about a summer of love. I know I felt like I was levitating when I met another vaccinated friend at a bar last week. What accounts for this? Some of this is trauma, of course, and I'm not here to shame our precious individual moments of joy. But much has been made of the particular and peculiar American optimism over the life of this country. Last year, in those catastrophic early weeks, The Week magazine published a piece pointing to the economic forecasts of a V-shaped recovery and a very low final death toll to claim our irrepressible optimism is serving us poorly through the pandemic. Indeed, social science research has found that Americans are far more optimistic than others in the world. We are more likely to believe that good things are coming our way. We report that our days are particularly good and are more likely to believe that we have control over our own fates. This is even more true of heavily religious people. The more likely you are to pray regularly, the more likely you are to report high life satisfaction and an upbeat attitude. This sounds pretty good, right? Dr. Edward Chang, a clinical psychologist and researcher at the University of Michigan, has tied this belief to a patriotic individualism. The sense of the positive self, he says, is a particular Americanism, a Westernism that is more than just a trait, it's almost a duty. Our hyper-individualism and the optimistic mindset it mandates are part of being a good American. They also make it hard for us to feel the depths of anger and grief. Dr. Cheng says, explicit pessimism isn't actually tolerated that much in our society. It's treated as a mental illness, a sign of depression. This intolerance for anxiety and, and pessimism is not a good sign when we can't find the outlets to collectively hold our anger, gloom, and sorrow. It's not a good sign when the virus burns through India and Brazil and so many here still lack work, health, and justice. Struggling to share with each other the real burden we carry we risk becoming captivated to the hedonic outlets of our suppressed year. This also makes it difficult to discern the Christian comfort. I've always liked the incarnational part of Christian faith. Jesus walked among us with a body that bled, died, and rose again, still wounded. The real despair uttered in the pages of the Bible by our forerunners in the faith is met with this audacious claim, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the good news that Jesus preached in Galilee from the very beginning of his ministry. It is a light shining through the debris of a broken world. But what does this gospel mean? Is heaven simply a rescue from earth's troubles for the individual saved? Or does the kingdom of heaven have relevance for our everyday battles beyond a simple afterlife? In 2016, 72% of Americans polled believe in heaven, whatever it means to believe in heaven. The cultural norm in America, the predominant spirit, and maybe this has something to do with American optimism, is the idea that heaven is a rescue from Earth's troubles and a place to which we are solitarily whisked off to once we die. It's a place of bliss where all of our troubles have ended, where we are liberated from this world and its pains. In the early 20th century, union organizer and songwriter Joe Hill criticized this very notion in one of his many hymn parodies, called The Preacher and the Slave. The chorus in which he imitates a preacher asked for bread goes like this. I'm not gonna sing it for you. You will eat by and by in the glorious land above the sky. Work and pray, live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die. This imagining of heaven has little to do with the bulk of the biblical witness. As Dr. Christopher Morse writes, 
Most references to heaven in the gospel testimony are not about blue skies or life after death. Instead, heaven is typically described as a kingdom with a deep relevance in our lifetimes. Here we get to the biblical text today, Acts 1, 6 through 14. In this story, the writer, the same as the Gospel of Luke, has begun by summarizing their previous work, including the many convincing proofs that Jesus gave of his own life post-resurrection. Jesus spent 40 days on earth after his resurrection, in which, we are told, he preached to them of the kingdom of God. I wish I could have heard those sermons. And the writer picks up the narrative from there. So when the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Galileans, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. The Ascension of Jesus is a strange text with which to talk about the good news of heaven. Part of the Apostles' Creed, it holds a key place in our Christian practice as it marks the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. It inspired countless works of medieval art, and it still marks a feast day celebrated by our siblings in the Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican, Methodist, and Reformed churches. All that art celebrates the glory of Jesus' ascension, his seating at the right hand of God. But I'm struck when I read this passage by the disciples, how they react to this revelation, not of heaven itself, but of Jesus' final words to them and his passing into heaven. In general, I find it most helpful to relate ourselves to the disciples in the New Testament stories. We are trying to follow Jesus, failing in drastic ways to even comprehend him, but being beloved and chosen nonetheless. First, they ask him after weeks of sermons, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Or Jesus, are you about to reign? Come on, man. The disciples still struggle to understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Typically, Jesus sidesteps the question. Only God knows the times that God has set, but he follows up that the disciples will be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth means not just the far-flung geographic regions. He's not just talking about India where Thomas will end up. He's not talking about America or Europe. The end here is the eschaton. That's the word they use for end in Greek. It means the temporal and the existential end of this world. With the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the believers are empowered to bear witness to Jesus's resurrection and coming kingdom until it comes in fullness. The second thing that stands out to me about the disciples' actions is that when Jesus is taken up to heaven, they stand there wondering where he has gone. I wonder if they were trying to see him still or look into heaven itself or waiting for him to come back. 
but they are informed by the mysterious men who appear to them that they do not need to be there staring, that Jesus will return in the same way that he has left. Some have taken this to be a purely spatial claim. Jesus, they say, will simply come down again from heaven, right? He went, oh, now he's coming down. But far from being a separate plane of reality with no bearing on our own until after our death, Ephesians 1 makes it super clear that this exaltation of Jesus is a position of authority, including over this, our very age. God put this power to work in Christ, the writer says, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus' ascension, then, is to the kingdom of God, established and at hand. I wonder, when the disciples prayed all together after his ascension, if they prayed as Jesus instructed all of us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The coming of the kingdom is the return of Christ, coming from the heaven that is God's dwelling place, and implementing its rule as it comes into our own earth. The ascension isn't the only place in which heaven is discussed biblically, of course. Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom of heaven throughout his earthly ministry. In his telling, it is those who, where those who keep God's commandments are great and those who break them least, where those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and the poor in spirit are in charge, where those martyred on behalf of God are rewarded, and where those who do God's will can expect to find home. But most importantly for our question, what does the gospel of heaven mean for us right now, is the good news of heaven brought in the revelation to John. Rather than us being brought somewhere new at the end of our lives, it is the new heavens and new earth that come down to us. And I saw the holy city, John writes, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new earth and God are unified and we are comforted. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. So what does it mean for us to understand the gospel of heaven as the good news that life in and with God is coming toward us? We're not being spirited away into it. We're accustomed to our pop versions of heaven, an idea that, of course, has brought a great deal of comfort for people throughout the modern age. I'm not preaching to invalidate that comfort, but in what ways might this new understanding of heaven be even better news? I can see three. It says that God is concerned with community, that our suffering matters to God, and that God is active in pursuing our good. First, in understanding the gospel of heaven, we can see that God cares deeply about community. If heaven isn't an individual salvation, but a reordering and redemption of the whole created order, heaven has a lot to do with our relationships with each other and with God. At the final day, we aren't saved alone. Instead, we are saved in and with the many people we know and do not know, to whom we are connected in ways we cannot comprehend. Second, in understanding the gospel of heaven thus, we can see that God doesn't rescue us from our suffering, but instead enters into that suffering to heal it with us. This biblical witness is consistent with the incarnation and the crucifixion in which our faith maintains that Jesus suffered the same death 
and all its attendant humiliations and pain that besets us all. If you have ever felt alone in the bitter grip of tragedy and pain, if you feel this way now, please know that God is present with you and that every facet of your sorrow is known to God, whether you can utter it or not. Third, we can see that God is active in pursuing our good. This is what Christians often talk about obliquely when we speak about grace. It is the initiative of God that brings us out of our sin and to forgiveness and into freedom. God isn't waiting for us to do something, but God is always active, always reaching out to us wherever we are in our lives, in our circumstances. Finally, it's clear to me that these together allow for a deeper hope than the American optimism, a hope that doesn't deny our responsibility to each other or the terrible circumstances of our lives as they are sometimes, but that instead meets and alleviates that burden, lifts it up with us. When we are beset by crises knotted together in which our neighbors and kin are hurting and many of us are overwhelmed, it is an inappropriate response to deny our responsibility to each other and to ourselves. We have a responsibility to grieve and to hold each other in our grief. We have a responsibility to push our culture to take suffering and our interconnection seriously. We have a responsibility not to rush toward a simpler, brighter future. And we can trust that God's complex but brilliant future is instead coming towards us. And we can welcome it in our thoughts, words, and deeds. I've told you that our society's response to the present crisis is a dysfunctional one. I've looked at the presence of this dysfunction in our conceptions of heaven, how it limits and constrains our best imaginings. We've read the biblical text together, looked at the multivocal reading of heaven, not as a location in space, but as this reign of God coming from God's dwelling place to ours. Surely heaven isn't a pie in the sky when we die, but God filling the bellies of the poor and reckoning all the systems that have kept them hungry. And maybe it's all the bread baking I've done in the last year and all the wild yeast that has flourished in my kitchen, but I go back again and again to one of the parables Jesus tells about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a woman who took yeast and mixed it in with three portions of flour until all of it was leavened. God's promise to us is not confined in some future time out of this world because God loves us deeper than we can ever understand. Our every thought, word, and deed is seen by God who has come down to earth for us before being elevated above it and who is bringing the whole kingdom of heaven even now a place where justice and mercy beyond all imagining reign, where even the trees clap their hands in joy, and where our tears aren't minimized, but are wiped away with tenderness by the one who has known us from the beginning of time. See, says God, I am making all things new. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.